Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Humo soldiers. Some of you are interested in scoring some Humo merch, like t-shirts and hoodies, but you don't want to wait to win a contest to get it. I get it. I have now set up an online store if you want to purchase one of those items. Check the liner notes for this episode to get the link. Thank you again to those of you who have joined Supporting Cast, the Apple subscription option, and the Patreon. The Patreon link is www.patreon.com slash leader1, L-E-A-D-E-R-O-N-E. Like with Supporting Cast and the Apple subscription, Patreon donors will get early releases, bonus episodes, and an entry in the monthly draws for merch. Remember, there is no minimum donation for the Patreon. If a dollar is all you can swing, it would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Monsters. Part 1. Richard Huckle, a.k.a. Britain's Worst Pedophile and the Gap Year Pedophile. Richard Huckle grew up as part of a middle-class family in Ashford, Kent, England. He was born on May 14, 1986. He was described by friends as 
quote, a bit of a loner, but nothing out of the ordinary. He was active in religion, attending church regularly. 2005 to 2006. This was a gap year for Huckle. He spent the year in Malaysia. He provided aid as a volunteer worker for churches and indigent communities. He moved there in 2010. He enrolled in a program facilitated by the British Council called CELTA, or Certificate in English Language Teaching to Adults. He also embarked on a career as a freelance photographer in communities situated in the region of Kuala Lumpur. To augment his professional standing, he enrolled in an IT course at Kuala Lumpur Metropolitan University College. He did not finish his studies. In 2006, Huckle kidnapped two sisters, aged four and five, in Cambodia. During his time in India, Huckle persuaded a pastor to take him to an orphanage to take photos and videos of the children for the purpose of making a promotional video for the organization. 2011 to 2012, Huckle was a part-time photographer for Nike Football Club Malaysia. December 19, 2014, Richard Huckle was arrested by Britain's National Crime Agency at the Gatwick Airport in London and brought in for questioning. He was suspected of committing serious offenses against children. The NCA received a tip from Task Force Argos, a police service operating out of Queensland, Australia, as part of their police service. The agency specializes in investigating reports of online child exploitation and abuse. Huckle did not cooperate. He was released on bail on the condition that he remained at his parents' house. His laptop was seized. The following day, he confessed to his mother under the influence of alcohol that he had, indeed, sexually abused the children who were cited as victims in the report. The victims ranged in age from 3 to 13. His parents no longer allowed him to remain in their house. Officers of Task Force Argos had been monitoring a network of pedophiles on the dark web in a location called the Love Zone. One member always began his contributions with the salutation, Haya. He was noted for having a distinctive freckle on his finger. The officers used social media and chat rooms to track him down. They found a Facebook page, but it turned out to be a fake. However, they used a photo to track down his vehicle. His name is Shannon McCool, a care worker from Adelaide. A warrant was issued for his arrest. When police arrived, he was online and tinkering with his website. The officers, using McCool's identity, went into his website and interacted with its users and members. Utilizing this technique, they arrested hundreds of other pedos. Eighty-five children were rescued from trafficking operations and other forms of abuse. One member of McCool's website that stood out was Richard Huckle. 
he boasted about abusing a high number of children. The attitude that came across in his descriptions also caught their attention. Learning that he was scheduled to return to England to spend Christmas with his family, British authorities were notified about his activities. After vacating his parents' house, Huckle was rearrested. He received 91 charges, including those of creating and possessing indecent images of children, rape of a child under the age of 13, digital penetration, sexual assault, and facilitating the commission of child sexual offenses by creating a quote-unquote pedophile manual. It took over an hour for the entire list of charges to be read aloud in court. The manual was entitled, Pedophiles in Poverty, Child Lover Guide. This was something Huckle believed in. Huckle was denied bail. Three trials were scheduled out of concern that a jury would not be able to digest all 91 charges without becoming disturbed. Huckle pled guilty to 71 of the 91 charges. Throughout the trial, disturbing details about Huckle's sexual abuse of children came to light. It came out that his youngest victim was six months old. The victim in question was wearing a diaper at the time of the abuse. Another was sexually abused for years, from ages 5 to 12. In a Love Zone message board, Huckle wrote, Hit the jackpot. A three-year-old girl as loyal to me as my dog. And nobody seemed to care. Another quote, Impoverished kids are definitely much easier to seduce than middle-class kids. In 2013, he bragged about abusing four children from the same family. He gave himself what he referred to as pedo points for every incident of abuse. He did not award himself points if he abused the same child more than once in a single week. He aspired to be a serial abuser and prided himself on being one. He also kept a journal in which he documented experiences with sexually abusing children and related matters. A few quotes have been made publicly available. Names were blurred out, so the names of the children I'm using are pseudonyms. Six quotes. Quote number one. The three-year-old I can have so much sex with that it's just boring? Well, at least she's now ready for business. Quote number two. Would love to make a small income off selling child porn. Number three. As long as I keep a broad number of contacts amongst the poorer people I know, I'm sure some would be inclined for someone of high status, such as myself, to be caring for their kids for long or short term. Number four. Quote number four was written as a caption next to a photo of two blurred out children, one of whom was naked. I did wonder about his private parts until I read the caption, though I personally feel there's little offense in natural nudity. Still, nice photo, though. Cute, smiley, happy children. Quote number five. Soon came Sue's fifth birthday, 
and I was allowed to take her out along with me to celebrate with her. This was my first time properly alone with Sue, so before her day out, she came by my place. She wasn't fond of being touched, but I eventually got her undressed and had her take one for the team. Our first proper naked sexual play together. You can probably tell from her expression that she wasn't most pleased, but that's the small price to pay when nobody else is interested in celebrating your birthday. Number six, I've been given my own Sunday school class. The kids have really taken to me as their giant playmate. I got a kiss from a little girl. He once noted that he wanted to marry and have children with a girl he had been abusing since she was seven years old. He has indicated that he is, quote, not a big fan of incest. Prosecutors revealed that Huckle abused 29 victims and a cache of 20,000 stills and videos of child pornography were found on his laptop. Authorities believe that he may have abused as many as 200 children in Southeast Asia, but only 29 were found in the photographic evidence. Speculation had it that there were thousands more child porn images on the laptop, but they were contained in a heavily encrypted area, and Huckle refused to disclose the keys by which they could be accessed. Most of it was never recovered. The court learned of some of Huckle's methods for luring the victims into the abuse. He would take them on field trips from orphanages. Some were taken by him home from their own birthday party. He considered marrying one victim and opening a foster home and abusing a quote-unquote cycle of children so he could cash in on his pedophilia, making it a career option. He drew up a ledger so that he could rank the abuse he visited upon each victim and keep a tally, like sports scores. 200 children were listed, though there was not enough evidence to determine if all the children in question were abused. Huckle was prosecuted under Section 72 of the Sexual Offenses Act 2003. The law enables British authorities to prosecute British nationals who have been involved in child sex tourism abroad. He is the seventh offender to be prosecuted with this act. June 6, 2016. Sentencing. The presiding judge, Peter Rook, decided that it was necessary to issue multiple life sentences. As it was clear, Richard Huckle was unrepentant and even boastful about the ways in which he had harmed children. Huckle tried to sell the court on the notion that he committed the crimes because of his immaturity. He had his lawyer read the following statement in court. I really understand and acknowledge the true scale of damage it caused to the Malaysian community. I had hoped to escape this mundane life of solitude in the UK, yet was overwhelmed by the attention I received in Malaysia. I completely misjudged the affections I received from these children. My low self-esteem and lack of confidence with women was no excuse for me to use these children as an outlet. I am open and eager to rehabilitate from this offending behavior. I don't want to become a martyr to sex tourism in Malaysia. 
This was all my doing as a consequence of my immaturity, and I am truly remorseful. Judge Rook sentenced Huckle to life imprisonment on 22 counts, with a minimum of 25 years to be served before he would be eligible for parole. Rook was not fooled by Huckle's lawyer's psychiatric report, with its history of depression and failures with age-appropriate members of the opposite sex. He pointed out that Huckle carried out a campaign of rape and was driven solely by the pursuit of his own gratification. To quote Rook from his statement to Huckle, you have pleaded guilty to as many as 71 sexual offenses. It is very rare indeed that a judge has to sentence sexual offending by one person on such a scale as this. In my view, you may well harbor feelings of regret, but there is no feeling of genuine remorse in this case. October 13, 2019 Richard Huckle was found dead in prison. He had been beaten, strangled, and stabbed to death. An inmate named Paul Fitzgerald was charged with the murder in 2020. The murder began with Huckle's hands and feet being bound by an electrical cord. He was gagged. He was strangled with an electrical cord. He was raped. His jaw was broken. An unspecified kitchen utensil was forcibly inserted into his anus. A pen with a blade attached was shoved up his nose all the way to his brain. The prosecutor at Fitzgerald's murder trial characterized the attack as, quote, a prolonged attack also designed to humiliate and degrade Huckle. When staff encountered Fitzgerald, he was straddling Huckle's body, which was surrounded by a pool of blood. Fitzgerald later disclosed that part of his plan was to cook and eat Huckle's flesh. The judge sentenced him to serve a minimum of 34 years before he could be considered eligible for parole. Part 2. Matthew Falder Matthew Alexander Falder was born on October 24, 1988, in Manchester, England. He grew up middle class in Knutsford, Cheshire. He was an exceptional student. He later attended university, specializing in seismic oceanography. He earned master's and doctoral degrees. Later, he was working as a researcher and lecturer in geophysics at the University of Birmingham. He was popular with his peers, widely regarded as extroverted, funny, and larger than life. Falder's earliest phase as a sex offender was reported as early as 2007. He engaged in voyeurism, watching housemates undress through a wall leading to a communal bathroom. He told a female roommate who laughed it off at the time. Falder's sexual behavior became more worrisome and abusive over time. Starting in 2009, he met young women and female minors online and, posing as a female avatar, manipulated children to appear in photographs in compromised positions. Following this, he would offer the images to other pedophiles on the internet. April 2015 the National Crime Agency discovered a user of HurtCore websites 
posting in the name of 666-DEVIL. It turned out to be Matthew Falder. The process of gathering evidence was slow, but on June 21, 2017, officers noted that, as they read the complete list of charges, Falder said it sounded like, quote, the rap sheet from hell. Falder abused over 50 victims. It took over a half hour to read all charges aloud in court. He was charged with 188 offenses in total and pled not guilty to 51 of them. Other identities Falder assumed online included a female doppelganger named Liz and in the dark web as In the Garden and Evil Mind aside from 666 Devil. In total, he created 70 different online identities. He lured people into taking photos of themselves, doing humiliating things. He blackmailed one person into raping a four-year-old child. He was an active participant in Hurt Corps, which consists of manipulating people into committing acts of rape, murder, sadism, torture, pedophilia, blackmail, humiliation, and degradation. Declaring his intentions with a 14-year-old as a target, he vowed to other users that he would, quote, mentally fuck her up. I am not sure I care if she lives or dies. He would pressure his victims relentlessly, and four of them attempted suicide. When one victim begged him to end the abuse or they would kill themselves, he told them the images of them he already had were distributed across the internet anyway. He was cocky, insisting he could never get caught. Among the most degrading of the acts Falder compelled people to carry out included eating feces, licking toilet seats, licking used tampons, eating dog food. The NCA has described him as, quote, one of the most prolific and depraved offenders they had ever encountered. October 17th, 2017. Matthew. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Matthew Falder pleaded guilty to 137 offenses committed against 46 victims. This makes him one of the most prolific sex offenders in British history. He was sentenced to 32 years in prison, followed by six years of supervised release. The judge dubbed Falder as an internet highwayman. He also called him warped and sadistic. He described his behavior as cunning, persistent, manipulative, and cruel. Following the sentencing hearing, investigators released footage of his arrest. Falder was said to revel in the anguish and pain that he had caused. A representative of the Crown Prosecution Service described Matthew Falder thusly. Matthew Falder is a highly manipulative individual who clearly enjoyed humiliating his many victims 
and the impact of his offending in this case has been significant. He deliberately targeted young and vulnerable victims. At least three victims are known to have attempted suicide and some others have inflicted self-harm. There was a high degree of sophistication and significant planning by Folder due to his use of encryption software and technology in his electronic communication and the use of multiple fake online identities and encrypted email addresses. Police officer Matt Sutton said, In more than 30 years of law enforcement, I've never come across an offender whose sole motivation was to inflict such profound anguish and pain. Matthew Falder reveled in it. I've also never known such an extremely complex investigation with an offender who was technologically savvy and able to stay hidden in the darkest recesses of the dark web. This investigation represents a watershed moment. Falder is not alone, so we will continue to develop and deliver our capabilities nationally for the whole law enforcement system to stop offenders like him from wrecking innocent lives. I commend the victims for their bravery, and I urge anyone who is being abused online to report it. There is help available. Javid Khan of Barnardo's, a children's charity, commented on the case and its implications for children worldwide. This sentence sends a message to pedophiles that they will pay for their crimes while hopefully giving other child abuse victims the confidence to come forward and seek justice. Bernardo's wants to encourage parents to talk to their children about the potential dangers online and know what new apps they're using and which websites they're visiting so that they can help keep them safe. Bernardo's also wants tech companies to sign up to an online code of practice to protect children, incorporate safety features when designing products, and take action as soon as abuse becomes flagged. Children and young people need to know how to report abuse through age-appropriate relationships and sex education. The University of Cambridge began proceedings to strip Matthew Falder of his academic credentials. Part 3. Louis Garavito, a.k.a. La Bestia. Louis Alfredo Garavito Cubilos had other honorifics. Trebelin, Disney's Goofy. El Cura, The Priest and Bonifacio Morera Lescano. He was born in the village of Genovo in Quindío, Colombia, on January 25, 1957. He was the first of seven children born to Rosa Delia and Manuel Antoni. The family lived in relative poverty. Theirs was a dysfunctional family, with abuse embedded in their day-to-day -day life. Though psychologists like to attribute an abusive family background as being the cause of one's killing spree, it doesn't explain why only one child in the family would commit such atrocities. He was later evaluated and found to possess the following characteristics, narcissism, sadism, and loneliness. His self-worth took a beating in the form of having to compete with six younger siblings for attention. It didn't help that he was physically and emotionally abused by his father. 
His mother was also emotionally and physically abusive, not to mention neglectful. His father was adulterous, and given that his violent temperament established a matching pair with that of his wife, the couple fought constantly, verbally and physically, further increasing the turmoil that was established as a de rigueur part of the family's day-to-day -day life. Once, when Louis defended his mother from his father, his father tied Louis to a tree when he was six or seven years old and beat him with a machete case. Manuel would even beat his wife while she was pregnant. More damage and trauma were incurred when Louis was sexually abused by two of his neighbors. Manuel would berate Louis, calling him an imbecile, a bastard, among other invectives. Louis has claimed his father never had a single kind word to say about him. Louis endured more bullying at school. Because of his thick glasses and awkward demeanor, he was called Squiggle. Occasionally, he got more than he could stand, and he would lash out violently. Teachers were cognizant of the bullying, but did nothing to stop it. A drugstore owner and neighbor of the family sexually abused Louis. The neighbor tied Louis to a bed, whereupon he raped him, burned him with a candle, cut him with a razor blade, and bit him on his genitals and buttocks. The first time this abuse occurred, Louis tortured and dismembered a bird out of frustration. He also acted out sexually against his siblings. He would go on to feel remorseful about it at the time. He commented on this incident. The only thing I wanted at that moment is to have killed myself. Then I see two little birds and I stone them. I took the little birds, opened them, and tore them to pieces. That was after my rape. I was very sorry. I don't know how I did it. While sleeping, I took my younger siblings and took off their clothes, and without them knowing, I fondled them. But my dad wouldn't let me have a girlfriend, and I had to hide all those things that happened to me. Louis has also admitted to molesting a six-year-old boy who was not related to the family. Louis was changing internally. He became withdrawn, aggressive, and prepared to lash out at the world. As far as his own propensity to commit sexual abuse, it was complicated by the fact that the abuse he suffered left him with sexual dysfunction. After the family moved to Trujillo, a new neighbor showed him pornography. He was disgusted. The neighbor threw him into some bushes and raped him. Louis tried forcing himself on a girl when he was 15 years old, but she repelled his advances. Abuse was coming at him from all directions, and since it was established that he was not safe and his boundaries were not respected, he would go on to fight a war to establish personal autonomy. He was tired of being the victim and would go on to live on the other side of victimhood, much to the detriment of others. Alcoholism was a common problem in the Garavito family, and Louis would imbibe frequently. In 1972, he was evicted by his mother because she caught him trying to rape a five-year-old boy. He was evicted again after trying to rape a six-year-old at a train station in Bogota. Louise's father was furious that he didn't choose women to rape and evicted him for homosexual behavior.
Louis did have relationships with women, but he would often become abusive with them to the point where he would be evicted. He was soon beset by symptoms of psychosis, paranoia, and depression. He was molesting prepubescent children compulsively, though he had a preference for boys. He expressed a desire to have a family and would demand sex from his female partners while he was drunk, but he still experienced erectile dysfunction. He was torn between his twisted desires for sex with children and what he knew to be redemptive behavior, like going to church, seeing a psychiatrist, and attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Ultimately, he would close off the day by utilizing the services of a child prostitute. Unfortunately, Colombia was an ideal hunting ground for an offender like Louis Garavito. Poverty was rife in the nation, and there were many street children. Not all of them were homeless orphans, but street children were nevertheless destitute and vulnerable. They were all waiting for a generous stranger to make vows to feed them, clothe them, and educate them. Louis began to carry razor blades, candles, and lighters to more effectively torture his child victims. He removed one of his teeth, feeling it would leave him better equipped to bite them. He would have nightmares about abusing children, only to wake and end up laughing hysterically at the suffering and anguish they experienced at his hand. He read Adolf Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, and respected Hitler, even wishing to emulate him, as he admired his ethnic cleansing initiatives. Apparently, he didn't realize that if he had lived in Germany at the time of the Third Reich, he himself would have ended up in the camps for being Hispanic. Louis Guerrero's resentment would fester into hatred, and eventually the seeds of a sadistic torturer and murderer were planted. His plan was to rape the victim and, from there, slit them open and disembowel them. This had little to do with sexual gratification. It was all about holding the reins of power that others had held over him. Because of the sexual abuse he suffered as a young man, sex, in his mind, would always be intertwined with torture and violence. He couldn't conceive of much else. He didn't intend to leave his victims alive because to do so would have been an act of mercy. January 25, 1984. Louis Guerrero was housed for 33 days in a psychiatric hospital after having a breakdown. He was put on antipsychotic medication and underwent psychotherapy. He was granted a furlough in February. He went to Pereira, whereupon he molested, burned, and bit two children. When the children reported him, he fled the city. He had molested and tortured about a hundred children by this point. He murdered a boy for the first time on October 4, 1992. His name was Juan Carlos. Juan was found near train tracks. His front teeth were knocked out. He was raped anally with a knife. His throat was slashed. He was castrated. 
When waking at sunrise and seeing Juan's blood on his clothing, Louis wept. Louis would amputate boy's toes to retain his keepsakes, though he would later discard them since there was no better piece of evidence than a body part. He would go on to murder dozens of other children, primarily boys, in the same fashion. He took to slicing open their stomachs in addition to the other horrors. He would lure them with gifts of money, candy, or promises to pay them for work. The tortures got worse. They would be stabbed with a screwdriver in the buttocks, hands, and feet. Their buttocks would be flayed with broken blades Garavito held between his fingers. When he severed their genitals, he would stuff them into their mouths. He would beat them, burn them, trample on them. Deep cuts were made in their stomachs, backs, and throats. On many occasions, he would rape them as their intestines hung out of their stomachs. It wasn't unheard of for him to stab a victim over a hundred times. He was generally beset by sexual dysfunction, but one thing that did make Garavito come was to either decapitate the child while they were still alive or slit their throat while he was about to ejaculate. April 22, 1999, Los Santoros Park, Villa Vicencio, Colombia. A boy named Ivan Sabogal frequented the park to sell lottery tickets as a means to fund his education, as he did that afternoon. As the sun was setting, it was clear to Ivan's family that he was not going to return home anytime soon. It wasn't like him to do so. Ivan's mother reported his disappearance to the police. She insisted that there must be something nefarious behind his absence. As she was indigent, Ivan's mother had no power to pull strings. Fortunately, a prosecuting attorney had been investigating a spate of disappearances of young boys. His name was Fernando Aya, and he had been looking into the disappearances of 13 boys over the previous six months. He discovered several mass graves on the outskirts of Villa Vicencio. He noticed some aspects of Ivan's case that were similar to some he observed in other cases of missing boys. A similar problem emerged in Colombia's coffee district, where more boys disappeared. In a small town called Nasaderos, the tortured bodies of 14 children were unearthed. Their ages ranged from 8 to 14 years old. The corpses had decomposed to the point that they could not be identified. Only bones and teeth were found. None of the children's parents could afford to have dental work done, so the use of dental records was not an option. Nevertheless, Mario Artunduega, Colombia's most renowned forensic reconstructionist, went to work assembling the bones. Because the victims were so young, he was left with no alternative but to create new methods for analysis. Aya tried the tack of monitoring the neighborhoods where the children were abducted. These districts were so densely populated that he didn't see how an abduction could take place without anybody noticing. One advantage the abductor would have was that there was a great deal of tall and thick flora to conceal him and make an uneventful getaway. 
Also investigating the disappearances and murders was a detective named Aldemar Duran. He had investigated three such murders and noticed similarities with other cases that were being investigated in other regions of Colombia. He cross-referenced the cases, examining murders and disappearances that occurred between 1991 and 1998. In the meantime, forensic scientists had materials like nylon threads and alcohol bottles to draw correlates from case to case. They came to a verdict. They now knew these crimes were not committed by a gang or even a duo. It was one sexual sadist who had been raping, torturing, and murdering legions of Colombian children. The urgency to catch the predator was escalating. Colombian authorities were inexperienced in solving such crimes, so they consulted an outside agency, the FBI. By February 1999, another mass grave was found. The offender was a veritable one-man holocaust. This grave was found in Palmyra. Another investigator, Carlos Herrera, joined the investigation. He would go on to identify an important piece of evidence. A pair of shoes with extreme wear toward the ends of the soles. In other words, the shoes were too large for the person wearing them. One of the heels was worn through, indicating that the perp had an odd gait, perhaps a limp. The shoes also helped investigators determine that his height must be between 163 and 167 centimeters. The detectives decided that one way to catch the perp was to go undercover. Giving the appearance of average plain-clothes citizens, they would watch the denizens of the country's poorest neighborhoods and wait for a man to lead a child astray. Detectives looked at files created on offenders throughout the last decade, and, whether charges were brought or not, they were at least willing to follow a paper trail. In 1996, a child named Ronaldo Delgado went missing. The case was similar to many others, except for one thing. There was a witness. A shopkeeper said he saw the boy with a man, and that he didn't recognize the man as being a local. The man was found and brought in for questioning, but there was no evidence to lay charges, so he was released. The man's name was Louis Alfredo Garavito. His name was included on a list of 25 suspects. Garavito's birthplace was listed as among the many mass grave sites. He had lived in a town called Trujillo, a site of another mass grave. Miracle of Miracles Ivan Sabagal escaped from his abductor. The police and his mother went to retrieve him. He described the man who kidnapped him. As they were driving back to the police station, Ivan pointed out a man walking on the side of the road, indicating him as the man who abducted him. The name the man gave the officers was Bonifacio Morero Lescado. It didn't appear on the list of suspects, but police brought him in for questioning. The man was calm, but Prosecutor Aya noticed some similarities between him and Louis Garavito. Where they varied was when it came time to sign documents. The signatures were always different. Aya could not dismiss his hunch that they had the real perpetrator under questioning. 
He took his photograph to a meeting with other prosecutors. They were based in various parts of the country, but were investigating the same crime. They all agreed on one thing. The man in the photo was Louis Alfredo Garavito. The scourge of Colombia was now behind bars. The downside was that they would need a confession because otherwise the evidence was circumstantial. They persuaded a friend of his to visit him in jail in hopes that Garavito might confess to her. He admitted to having a bag of personal items that were relevant to the crimes. Most notable were newspaper clippings about some of the crimes and photos of some of his victims. A scrap of paper had some strange markings on it. It turned out that they were a tally of his victims. Finally, after a lengthy description of his crimes given by a detective using all available information, Garavito couldn't listen to it anymore and confessed to each murder and detailed how he carried out the crime. He claimed to have been possessed by evil spirits before he committed each murder. He kept a journal. When he wrote in blue, he quoted Bible verses and transcribed his so-called pure thoughts. When he wrote in red, he detailed his crimes. Garavito was tried and convicted on two counts. The first was for murder he committed in Tunja, which is a central province of Boyaca. 14-year-old Silvino Rodriguez's tortured body was found dismembered in June 1996. The other count was for the attempted rape of Ivan Sobogal, who was 12 years old at the time. Garavito confessed to the murders of 190 young boys. Experts speculate the number was likely closer to 300. There is no death penalty in Colombia. Garavito received the maximum sentence, which is 60 years. It came out that the way Garavito gained the trust of his victims was to pose as a monk, missionary, humanitarian worker, a disabled old man, or a street peddler. Once he got them alone, he would rape them. He followed up by slitting their throats under their deaths. Dismemberment followed murder. His instruments of choice were screwdrivers and knives. Garavito has indicated a desire to embark on a political career after his release. He has also stated he wants to work with children. Part 4. Pedro Lopez, a.k.a. the Monster of the Andes. Pedro Alonso Lopez was born on October 8, 1948, in Venadio, Colombia. He and his family lived in poverty during his childhood. He was the seventh of 13 children born to a prostitute named Benelda Lopez de Castaneda. There was a great deal of violence in his house. His family suffered as a result of the lack of a paternal figure. His father was murdered six months before he was born. Pedro's history of child abuse began when he was himself a child. His mother caught him in the act of molesting his younger sister when he was nine years old. She threw him out of the house. As a homeless child, Pedro wandered the streets of Bogota. Due to his vulnerability, he was sexually abused. 
When he was 12 years old, he was adopted by a family of expat Americans. He ran away from their home after he was raped by a teacher. 1969. Pedro was arrested for stealing a car. He was sentenced to seven years in prison. During his stay, he was gang-raped by four other inmates. Days later, he tracked them down and killed them all. Though he proved that the killings were in self-defense, two years were added to his sentence. 1978. Pedro Lopez was released from prison. He drifted throughout northwestern South America. He eventually settled in Peru. He has claimed to have killed over a hundred girls during this time, mostly street children and some members of indigenous tribes. These claims have never been verified, however. He was captured by an Ayacholchuan tribe because he tried to abduct a nine-year-old girl. They confiscated his clothes and belongings and buried him in sand. An American missionary stumbled upon the scene and persuaded them to hand him over so he could be taken to police. The police did not detain him, but they did banish him from the country. After leaving Peru, Lopez traveled throughout South America. As he did, authorities took note of a rash of missing persons reports, with most of the people being prepubescent girls. It was initially assumed that human trafficking was involved. April 1980. Areas surrounding Ambato, Ecuador were struck by flash floods. The bodies of several girls were unearthed by the waters, all of whom had been reported missing. The police reopened their investigations. Soon after the floods, a woman named Carvina Poveda was walking to a market with her 12-year-old daughter, Marie, when Pedro Lopez tried to abduct the girl. Merchants witnessed the incident and overpowered Lopez detaining him until police arrived. Lopez refused to cooperate during the interrogation. Police Captain Pastor Cordova dressed up like a prisoner and posed as one in Lopez's cell. Because Lopez didn't know he was the captain, he opened up to him. He bragged about killing over 200 girls in Ecuador, several more in Peru and Colombia. He said he would lure them into a private space by promising to give them some kind of trinket. Once they were beyond the sight of onlookers, he would rape them and strangle them with his bare hands. He also said he would exhume them from the burial sites later and have tea parties with them. When asked about his motive, he said, I lost my innocence at age of eight, so I decided to do the same to as many girls as I could. Following the confession, he directed authorities to the bodies of 53 girls, leading to a confirmed total of 110 victims in Ecuador. In late 1980, Pedro Lopez was sentenced to 16 years in prison for the murders, which was the maximum sentence allowable under Ecuadorian law. August 31, 1994 Pedro Lopez was released two years early for good behavior. He was deported back to Colombia. 
He was declared an illegal immigrant, but ultimately authorities were unable to build a case against him. He was declared insane and admitted to a mental hospital. He was released under condition that he report to authorities from time to time. He did not. He visited his mother's home to inquire about his inheritance. He wound up selling some of her furniture for money on the street. The last time he was seen was when he went to the National Civil Registry in September 1999 to renew his citizenship card. He was suspected in 2002 of committing another murder like the kind he was charged with years ago. He was never found. 2006. The Guinness Book of World Records cited Pedro Lopez as being the most prolific serial killer of all time. This was controversial due to the fact that many people felt it was inappropriate to make a competition out of murder. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.